Uh, our sermon this morning, or our section of scripture we will look at this morning, is found in Luke uh, chapter number six. We're going to be in verses 17 through 26. Luke chapter number six, verses 17 through 26. Also, next week we will have our starting point class. If you have not uh, gotten connected to our church, if you want to know more about next steps, about how you can get more involved in our body, um, please stay after church. The only thing is we desperately need you to sign up for that because uh, we need to have child care in place and we also provide uh, some refreshments, uh, a quick uh, meal during the, during the meeting. So if you are planning to come, the only requirement is, is that you sign up uh, through the weekly email. It's a really uh, quick process, but we would love to see you. We definitely need you to sign up. Luke chapter number 6. Verse 17 declares, and he came down with them and stood at, on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him, from him, and he healed them. And he lifted up his eyes uh, on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who, who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you, uh, when you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your, your reward is great in heaven." Uh, so their fathers did not uh, did to the prophets, but woe to you who are rich, for you receive your consolation. Woe to you who are now full, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Uh, this morning, I want to share just very quickly uh, how disciples are different. We want to talk about how disciples are different. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that uh, though my body is weary, uh, my soul and my spirit is encouraged. Um, I thank you for an opportunity uh, to dig into your word. I thank you for an opportunity to see how discipleship makes us different. God, help us to be reminded of the truth that is only found in your word. And God, help us once again to not just receive information, God, but we want to be in your presence for the purpose of transformation. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last time we were together, we spoke about how Jesus was willing to intentionally take a step back before he took a step forward. We certainly live in a culture today that encourages us to never retreat. We live in a culture today that encourages us to always push forward, to always break through the glass ceiling, to always grind harder and to do more. And that culture is totally different than the culture that Christ has for us. Following Christ, we must understand, is countercultural. It has been said that the Christian life should be a life that is countercultural, that is different than our current culture today. When Jesus took a step back, it was not wasted time. When Jesus took a step back, it was invested time. When Jesus took a step back, he took the step back 
to pray. He took a step back to model communion with his father. And in taking that step back, Jesus shows us dependence upon the father. In doing so, Jesus shows us that we too can be dependent upon the father. In doing so, Jesus sets forth an example that reminds us that spiritual maturity or Christian maturity is marked in dependence upon the Lord. We need to understand that the more mature you are, the more dependent you will be on the Lord. On the other side of that, the less dependent you are upon the Lord means the less mature you are. In the text, Jesus takes a step back to pray. He specifically takes a step back to prepare himself before he picked the 12, the 12 apostles. Uh, this week, I hope that you um, remembered that challenge, that we shouldn't just jump into things, we shouldn't just kick doors open, that we should take steps back to pray. Uh, in the text, in picking the 12, Jesus had to, uh, Jesus allowed them to make a decision between picking between a life that was comfortable and convenient and picking a life that followed Christ. Jesus took a step back. Before he took that step back, he was, well, well, Jesus took a step back and he picked the disciples, but before he took that step back, he prepared himself to make a choice. This morning, we want to remember that in the text, Jesus is calling us also to make a choice. Jesus is presenting to us two different worlds and two different options for us to apply. Jesus is giving us now an opportunity to pick the values of your life. I want to just simply ask a question this morning. Would you rather be poor, hungry, sad, and hated, or would you rather be rich, well-fed, happy, and popular? Which one do you want? Poor, hungry, sad, and hated, or rich, well-fed, happy, or popular? On some level, the passage is giving us an invitation to evaluate what is it that we truly value. Before we jump into the passage, I need to clearly say this, that this is probably one of the most well-known uh, teachings of Jesus. It's a very familiar passage. It's a passage that is often referred to as the Beatitudes. And the problem with uh, familiar passages is that they are too familiar. The problem with familiar passages is that we kind of approach these passages thinking that we already know what the passage has to say for us. It's unfortunate that many preachers and many readers of this passage have approached applying the passage incorrectly, kind of like we approach the Ten Commandments incorrectly. For many of us, we see passages like this and like passages like the Ten Commandments. We see them as a ladder instead of a mirror. Said it again. Many of us see these passages as a ladder instead of a mirror. One has the mindset that says, I'm going to do something to climb my way to the Lord. I'm going to do something tangible to perform in such a way where I can be pleasing to God. I really do believe that rather than seeing this passage as a ladder to climb your way up, I believe that this passage should serve as a mirror. It is a mirror that confronts our sin. It is a mirror that reminds us that we need a Savior. It is a mirror that reminds us that we cannot do this on our own. And when, throughout all of Scripture, we need to understand that 
that the commands of Scripture are not simply about external commands where we gain entry into the Christian life because we do certain things. Uh, when we see these passages as a ladder rather than a mirror, we look at them like God is calling us to check off another box rather than God wanting to confront our hearts, rather than God trying to remind us that we need a Savior. We need to be careful that we see familiar passages uh, like this, and we need to take the time to look at the passage and identify, am I purely looking at this as something external where I'm doing an exercise, or am I looking at this as something internal where God wants to transform my life from the inside out? Uh, the great reformer, Martin Luther, says it this way. He gives a, powerful pa- gives a powerful statement on the passage, and he says, Christ is saying nothing in this sermon about how we become a Christian, but only about the works and the fruit that no one can do unless they are a Christian and unless they have experienced grace. This is not a mechanism for a man or a woman to become a Christian. But this is the fruit of a life that has been impacted by Christ. The two camps here, those who trust in their performance and those who trust in what Christ has accomplished. And if we're honest, we all want to be more rich than poor. I know I do. I can't speak for you. This is me talking. I want to be more rich than poor. I want to be more well-fed than hungry. I want to be more happy than sad. I want to be more popular than hated. Our whole lives are oriented around having one over the other. You are going to go to work tomorrow or later on today because you want to be more rich than poor. You're going to go to work tomorrow, and you're going to work eight hours at least, and you're going to do that because you want to be more well-fed than hungry. You're going to live your life in such a way where you want to be more loved than hated. And we get, when we look at the passage, we've got to remember that, that the passage is not simply talking about something external. The passage is speaking about something internal. The passage is reminding us that we need to address what we value the most. The sermon is not calling you, catch this, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The sermon is not calling you to be more poor. The sermon is not calling you to mourn more. The sermon is not calling you to check off another box, to try harder, to do more. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not a checklist. This is not how we follow Jesus. What the passage is communicating is this. The passage is communicating that when you have been impacted by Christ, when you have been impacted by the Lord, when you have had divine grace visit your life, catch this, your life will be different. Your life will look very different than a life that is lived in the world. The life of the believer, the life of the Christian, the life of the person who has placed their hope and their trust and their faith in Jesus should look totally different than someone who does not know Christ. The person who has, who has surrendered their, lo- their life to the Lord, that should look totally different than a person who has no concept and no idea of what Christ has commanded. And I want to be careful here that we need to understand that I'm not encouraging Christians to be weirdos. I'm not encouraging Christians to be crazy. I'm not encouraging you to be uh, this Jesus freak who is uh, living on an island by yourself. That is not at all what I'm encouraging. We've got to remember that this is not about more information. 
the text is here for more transformation. The text should be asking, the text calls us to ask the question, am I being transformed? Is Christ having an impact on my life? It's important for me to say this, even as a, as a, as a church and as a pastor, the church hasn't been as impactful as it should be because the church has re- forgotten about the Christian commitment to be set apart. We don't like that kind of preaching. We don't want to hear about no holiness. We want to hear about that now. We don't want to hear about being set apart. We don't want to hear about being devoted to God. But when you look at the text, it says something about people who should be set apart from the world. Set apart, meaning that we are different. First uh, Peter 2.11 reminds us, in verse 11 it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, New Living Translation says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners. Like, the the passage is reminding us that we are aliens and strangers in a foreign land. That this world is not our home. And since this world is not our home, we should be different in how we live each and every day. I want to say a word about why we do things different as a church, right? I love our church. I'm the pastor of the church. Uh, I, I'm very thankful to be here. Um, I want to say as well, even if I was not the pastor of this church, I really do believe that I would be a member of this church because I love the spirit of this church. I love the, the, the love and the compassion. I love the diversity. I love the different stages of life. I would absolutely want to be a part of this church. And I hope and pray, no matter where you are on your faith journey, I know that there are people who are here who have not placed their faith in Christ. And I hope on some level you feel a love that is from the Lord. I hope that you understand that there is not a certain level of performance that you have to get to before we love you and care for you well. As a church body, we should be loving and caring. But I want to say something very important about our church. This church is not for unbelievers. The church is for believers. The ecclesia is the called out ones. This this fellowship is about believers. Now, we're not an exclusive social club where we bar people who don't have a relationship with Jesus. Don't hear me saying that. But the primary focus is about equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. The primary focus is that we come together and we love one another and we encourage one another and we do things differently. I hope and pray as a pastor that when people come here, they see something different. We don't want to be so close to the world that we look like the world. We don't want to do things like the world. We don't want people to feel at home in here who are not believers. We want people to see those folks have something different. Not that we're elitist, not that we are uh, exclusionary, but, but we need to understand that, that as, a, as a church body, we want to be different. Our goals want to be different. Our, our, our messaging wants to be different. Our music must be different. Our love must be different. Our, res- our service must be different. How we respond must be different because Christ makes a difference. I believe that, that so many churches and specifically so many Christians, this is, this is me talking to me, are not impactful in this world because we're no different than the world. It's no different in our lives. 
Christians are so ineffective because we are so like the culture. Why would an unbeliever come to church with you on five days out of the week? You are rude. You're disrespectful. You cut the same corners. You're nasty. You're unfaithful to your spouse. Like, why would anybody listen to what you have to say? We lack integrity. We lack consistency. And Satan, once again, this is not a salvation issue, but this is a reminder that Satan ruins our effectiveness because we are not willing to be different. As believers, we are called to be different. But in reality, we have become the same. We listen to the same music. We laugh at the same jokes. We DVR the same shows. We use the same language. We log on to the same websites. We cut the same corners. We do the same uh, shady deals. We hold the same prejudices, prejudices. We are the same as the world. Yet we're surprised and shocked that we have no impact on the world. Once again, I am not speaking about salvation this morning. I'm not speaking about what saves you, but I'm speaking about what makes you different. And the Christian life should be marked by, by us being different than the world. And when you look at the text, the text tells us uh, three, uh, four actual things about how we should be different than the world, how our unbelieving friends and our uncommitted friends should see our lives. First uh, Peter uh, 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among those who do not believe, honorable, so that when uh, they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and catch this, glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 12 reminds us that we are to be different, so different in such a way that the world would see the glory of God. Now, before we jump into the text, I need to just say, say two things that we got to be careful of. There are two things that we need to be very afraid of this morning. The first thing is we can be so extreme and we can be so aloof that we can be so absorbed by the culture that we have people to talk to and nothing to say. Like we can be so like the world that we're connected to them, but we have nothing to say to them. But on the other side, we can be so extreme that we can be isolated and we can have something to say, but no one to say it to. Can't be, can't be either one of those things. I can't be so uh, consumed with the culture and so much like the world that when I speak, the world sees no difference. And at the same time, I cannot be on this island by myself where I have no one to speak to who needs to hear the message of Christ. This is why this is a hard passage for us to consider because it causes us to apply the truth to our lives personally. It's super easy for me to look at you and be like, you know what, you need to be more like this or you need to be more like that. It's another thing for me to say, you know what, Thomas, are you different? Is your marriage different? It's how you respond different. It's how you look at your finances different. It's how you, how you are living your life is it different or is how you live in your life just like the world? When you look at the text, there's a very easy progression here where Jesus steps back to pray. Jesus picks his apostles. The apostles have to decide whether or not they will follow Jesus. And then Jesus tells the next group about what it really means to be a disciple. And he says, if you're going to be a disciple, discipleship looks different in a couple of different ways. 
first point we'll make is this. Disciples are different in how we view our finances. Disciples are different in how we view our finances. Verse 20 says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Uh, to clearly understand this passage, we need to, re- we need to remember that in the Old Testament, uh, the, the idea of poverty was usually connected with something bad. That's why Proverbs 30, uh, verse 8 and 9 says, Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of thy God. He's saying, Lord, don't let me get too poor now, because I, I may have to put that put on somebody. But Lord, don't let me get too rich to where I forget about you. Historically in the Old Testament, when God would bless his people, the blessing was always, or the blessing was usually connected to something uh, material. Uh, that's why the promised land was a land flowing of milk and honey. By the time we see King David and King Solomon, national wealth had become a sign of divine blessing. But when you see sin enter the picture and you see the people go into captivity, in Isaiah 61, the people of Israel are exiled and the people of Israel had a temptation to compromise to get things from the world. And in compromising, they were turning their backs on God. So they had to make a decision. Do I compromise or do I accept poverty and be faithful to God? Do I compromise and get the riches or do I stay faithful to God and experience lack in this world knowing that God will ultimately give me what I need in the next world to come? When you look at the text, Jesus is telling us very clearly that we need to have the proper understanding of our poverty, that we need to have the proper understanding of what a true blessing is. We need to take, the, take a moment to have deep, deep reflection about how God has blessed us. Max Lucado uh, speaks on this point, and he says, uh, this is a cause for deep reflection, especially for those of us who comfortably are concealed in a prosperous culture. We rich are constantly assaulted with the temptation to rely on riches, but we cannot rely on them because those things cannot satisfy us. We rich are dulled to our need because we have plenty. Because we have plenty, we don't see that we have real needs that can only be found in God. These are the hard questions that we must ask ourselves, but these are the questions that remind us whether or not we are dependent upon the Lord. When the the passage speaks about blessed are those who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God, the passage is communicating that those who follow Jesus understand this, catches very clearly that certain things only can come from the Lord. That, that my poverty is a reminder that God will meet my deepest needs. So first, we see that disciples are different concerning how they deal with their finances. There's nothing wrong, I want to say this very clearly, with having finances. There's nothing wrong with having money as long as money does not have your heart. So disciples are different in how we view our finances. But secondly, disciples are different in how we view a famine. Verse 25 says again, Woe to you who are now full, for you shall be hungry. 
Woe to you who are now full, verse 25, for you shall be hungry. Again, the Old Testament does not uh, directly equate blessings with physical hunger, but it does uh, commend a different kind of hunger. The scriptures are challenging. What are you most hungry for? That's why Psalm uh, 42, verse 1 says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God, when I shall come and appear before God. Psalm 61, verse 1 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. David's imagery is passionate because he's saying, my soul thirsts. This is a spiritual picture of longing. As a disciple, you, have, you should have longings that come from the Lord. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, a phenomenon or a, a new thing to do. People started having uh, vision board parties, and I don't have any issue with a vision board. A vision board is an opportunity for you to place a, a physical picture of what you believe you were to have. Um, on vision boards, you have, you know, you have certain cars, you have certain clothes, you have, um, I'm sure there are people who are not married who have a vision of their wedding. There's nothing wrong with the vision board by itself. But I want to challenge you with this. When you think about the vision board, the vision board reveals the longings of a heart. The vision board reveals what you desire the most. And here's the point I want to make. As a believer, as a disciple, your vision board should look different. You should have different longings than people in this world. You should have longings that are consistent with the scriptures. Your longings should be in line with Christ. As a disciple, your longings should be focused on the Lord. That should be focused on the lost. That should be focused on doing things that are impactful. There's nothing wrong with having longings as long as those longings are consistent with what God desires for your life. And I think it's honest. I think we got to be honest this morning. That's why the sermon is so tough. Many times my longings are not in line with the Lord. My longings are not in line with what God has for me. And when I, when I see that, it's, it's a reminder that, that my longings need to be transformed by Christ. Because the deepest longings of my heart, the deepest things that I desire the most can only be satisfied and fulfilled by God. That's, that's, it's, it's unfortunate that many of us live our entire lives trying to, trying to fill places in our life that only God can fill with things that are not God. The things that only the Lord can fill. That is why Jesus tells us everyone who is hungry and those who are thirsty, he says, I will give them a spring of water that will well up into eternal life. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He's saying, I will give you what ultimately will satisfy you. And the issue that many of us have is we're hungry for the wrong things. There's a story told of a duck that was flying with his flock in the springtime over the northern part of Europe. And during the flight, he came down and he saw this Danish barnyard where he saw some tame ducks. And in the yard, he saw um, some corn and he stayed for a little while to rest. A couple of minutes turned into an hour, an hour turned into a day. And for a week, he stayed. Then it turned into a month. And then finally, he found himself there for the year. The next autumn, when the, the flock of wild 
ducks came uh, swinging or came winging their way by. They passed over the barnyard, and their mate heard their cries, and it was, he was stirred in his emotions. He was filled with joy and delight. He began trying to fly. He began trying to join his old comrades in flight, but he found himself weighted down because of what he had been eating. He was soft. He was heavy. He was not able to rise up to where they were. So he dropped back down, and he said to himself, I'll catch him next year. Next year came, he said, I'll catch him next year. The next year came, he said, I'll catch him next year. And every year, his eyes would gleam and his eyes would be excited when he saw his friends flying. But he got to the place where he accepted, I will not be able to be where they are. He got to the place in his life where he says, I cannot ever pursue things from above. Is that not how we are? We get to this place in our lives where we're comfortable, where we, we enjoy the corn in the barnyard, and we, we stay for a couple minutes, and we stay for a couple hours, then we stay for a couple days, a couple months, a couple years, and we get to this place where we see what God has called us to be, kind of like Matthew. Remember, we talked about how God had called him for more than where he was. And a lot of us here today, we know God is calling us for greater than we are right now. I'm not talking about money, cars, or clothes. I'm saying your purpose in life. God is calling you to greater, but instead of being concerned about things above, we have been domesticated like the duck. As Christians, as disciples, we've got to fight being domesticated. We've got to fight the, the, the urge to be satisfied with things that God does not have for us. Even as a church, our church is great. We're growing. But I want to continue to be concerned about things above. I want to see what God has for us in the future. Right now, my marriage is great, but I want to be concerned about things above. I want to see things greater. My children are doing well. I'm glad that they're doing well, but I want to see things greater. And if we are not careful, we will become domesticated. But I love discipleship because discipleship protects me from being spiritually domesticated. So first, disciples are different in how we view our finances. Disciples are different in how we view our famine. And then thirdly, disciples are different in terms of what we view as funny. It says, blessed are they who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn. I want to say this very clearly. Please do not think that these statements are an attack on laughter. Jesus does not mean blessed are the grim and the cheerless Christian. Blessed are the super serious saints. Like Jesus is not saying that. We want our fellowship to be warm. We want uh, our fellowship to be marked by, by joy and peace. But catch this. That's why I don't stand up here on Sunday and tell y'all jokes. I'm not here to entertain you. Our church is not here to entertain your kids. We are here to challenge you. And a lot of times, if we're not careful, we can get to this place to where we are unable to take things serious that God takes serious. That's what the pastor is communicating. Blessed are they who take serious the things that God takes serious. And a lot of us, we just don't take serious the things that God takes serious. We laugh at things that should cause us to mourn. We mourn at things that should call us to, cause us to laugh. So first, disciples are different in how we view our finances. Secondly, disciples are different in how we view our famine. 
Thirdly, disciples are different in what we view as funny. And then lastly, disciples are different in terms of how we view our fulfillment. Verse 22 says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Verse 26, woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Chris and the band, y'all can come on up now. I want you to notice what the text does not say. The text does not say, blessed are you when men hate you or women hate you, and when they exclude you and and they insult you and reject you because of you, right? It's not because of you. It's a blessing when it's because of Christ. So many times we think that because things are rough, it must be because of Jesus. There's going to be somebody who's going to be late at work tomorrow, and you're going to get rolled up, and you're going to be like, you know what? It's because I went to church this weekend. (laughs) That's a lie. You're going to think that, you know, because you're in a group project, and you know what? Everybody else in your group, they didn't go to church today, but you came to church, and they gave you extra work, and you're going to think, you know what? It must be because of Jesus. No, no. In the text, the hatred and the opposition is on account of Christ. So my question is, what are you engaged in in your life on account of Christ that will make people hate you? Like, what are you engaged in on account of Christ that will make people speak bad about you? Like, like, what are you committed to because of Jesus? Not your personal promotion, not yourself. Like, what are you committed to that's a gospel issue that's causing you to be pushed back on because of Jesus? That's what the text is communicating. And it's okay if I'm pushed back on. It's okay if people come against me because ultimately I cannot please people. As a pastor, I've learned this. I cannot please you guys. So I need to be focused on pleasing Christ. And when I focus on pleasing Christ, I find fulfillment. When my focus is on God telling me, well done, then I'm okay. So as we close, I want to give three very simple points of application. I'll be done with this morning. The first thing that we need to see very clearly is Discipleship should make you different. You cannot tell me that you are in a relationship with God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sovereign Lord of the entire universe, and your life not look different. If your life does not look different, and I want to be very, I want to be intentionally vague with that statement because that's going to look different for different people. I, want to, I don't want to give you something to check off a box this week, but I want you to pray about how does my life look different than the world. Secondly, discipleship, it makes you desperate. It makes you hungry for things that can only be found in God. I hope and pray that we don't get domesticated, that we don't get so comfortable in our little our little church 
that we're not continuing to desire more from the Lord. And lastly, after we see that discipleship makes, makes us different and desperate, lastly, discipleship makes me dependent. The more I walk with God, the more I am dependent upon the Lord. The more I am surrendered to the Lord. The more I can pray like Jesus and say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done.